You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual in the last days of summer is ITK analyst David Leach. Um, How are you, David? Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners are as ever well and and enjoying the podcast. Uh, It's just you and uh, me tonight, but I mean, uh, listeners could do worse, I suppose, in our opinion. Oh, look, absolutely. (laughs) Well, now this will start listening in and discover to the dismay that there is not an invited guest. Um, I hope they do stick around. Look, there's been interesting things. It just occurred to me, actually, I sort of improvised on the introduction and said it was the last day of summer. I mean, touch wood. Um, it's been a summer with really um, not many um, major events, unlike in Texas, as, we, as we've as we heard and, and elsewhere. So I'm not too sure whether that's a testimony to better planning, better integration, milder weather, or a combination of all, the, all of the above. Well, I think it's it's really the milder weather. Demand is definitely down up to 1,000 megawatts in the middle of the day uh, this, for the calendar year to date compared to last year. And that's including the increase in rooftop solar. So the actual electricity consumption is down uh, up to 1,000 megawatts. And it's more down in New South Wales and Queensland than it is in uh, I think it might actually be up in Victoria. So I'm thinking it's uh, very largely to do with the weather, uh, which has been quite unusual this year compared to previous years. And we've seen that in in, in um, the United States and in Europe and even in China. In China, I think it's been both cold and hot um, uh, already. And certainly, obviously, in Texas, they've had all these issues, which have uh, received a lot of attention in the media. But the thing that I found quite amusing about Texas myself was that one of the issues with the gas generation going offline was because it couldn't get enough gas. And one of the reasons there wasn't enough gas is all the gas transmission pumps were electrically powered. <laughs> and uh, so when there's no electricity, there's no gas. And when there's no gas, there's no electricity. That uh, You could almost write a Catch-22 book about that, couldn't you? I, th- I think that's called a circular economy, isn't it, David? <laughs> yes, that's, that's the real circular economy. <laughs> Yeah, look, um, fascinating with Texas. Um, we had an interesting chart that we published um, today, actually, um, or this week, uh, which looked at the um, amount of wind as, as a share of, of local grids. And it just sort of showed that in places like Ohio and Idaho, um, it's actually sort of significantly more than it is even in Texas. But one of the reasons why they can overcome their cold weather is that they've actually weatherized their wind turbines. And look, you know, all the sort of, you know, people were pointing the bone at renewables. And um, it's true that some wind turbines did go out because of um, icing but um, that's probably because the Texan uh, Texas turbines had not been um, weatherized and it doesn't actually take that much to do that but the sort of more fundamental problems was with the thermal generation it's just interesting now how they've actually sort of become more variable in responding to um, to changes in, um, in 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 temperature um, sort of basically victims of the same accusation that people sort of say about wind and solar when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Well, I think the more relevant, uh, one of the relevant considerations, and I was reading quite a good article uh, in the conversation today by Tim Nelson, uh, talking about uh, whether it's the capacity versus energy markets. As some of our listeners may know, Texas is uh, like Australia. It has an energy only market, essentially. 
uh, rather than paying people to keep capacity in reserve. Uh, but the thing is, as we go forward, um, and, and on average, that energy markets probably produce lower prices for consumers uh, on average uh, most of the time. But there will be times in those markets where there's a real capacity problem and, you know, you might get a blackout. And uh, I think, you know, once the blackout's gone, everyone tends to forget it, as few people now remember the South Australian crisis all that hard. We've moved on past that. Um, but the question is, as we develop the post-2025 uh, market design, I suppose, can we capture something that's either in between a capacity and an energy market or take the best features of both? And uh, Tim was talking about a bit of a demand response, uh, sort of firming flexibility market where you, you don't want to overpay for capacity that's not used very often, but you do want to have uh, energy available when you, and power when you need it. I haven't actually seen that article, but I'm very glad that Tim is mentioning the flexibility markets. I think that was sort of first sort of raised um, uh, many years ago, and it's exactly that. It's trying to get the best of both worlds <clears throat> rather than the worst of both worlds, which we sometimes see in sort of policy making in any particular sector. And uh, we've seen in WA, which does have a capacity market where some generators have obviously been overpaid and underused. And I can think of one in particular, which is a 108 megawatt or is it 92 megawatt diesel peaking plant, which has never actually been switched on. It's been sitting there for nearly a decade now, um, has probably received about $110 million, which is more than it cost. And um, it's never actually been used, apart from being fired up on occasions just to sort of meet its maintenance contract and uh, just to check that it does still work um, if, it, if it is needed. So, um, yes, I think we've got to be very careful. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in um, how these uh, market rules actually evolve. And one of the things, of course, needs to be able to do is to recognise the new technologies and um, talking about firming, talking about sort of backup and um, the new things. We've seen a lot more battery storage announcements um, around Australia. In fact, it, it never seems to stop, really. No, uh, and I was also looking at... Um uh, I mean, and again, it's one of the arguments that uh, or one of the things to consider when we talk about the coal generation closing early, which is another theme that sort of everyone's jumping on uh, now. And, and certainly we at ITK have been talking about that. But one of the questions is whether you couldn't uh, pay some of these coal generators a little bit to hang around and provide, you know, capacity if it was needed. I mean, they're obviously not the same sort of power stations that you really want doing that. Uh, but they do exist already. Um, and for some generators, it might be quite attractive as opposed to incur incurring uh, very heavy uh, closure costs. But talking about the new technology, we've got battery announcements uh, all over the place, um, uh, lots of talk, and then companies like Neowin that have actually secured the finance to, to do the, their battery uh, from the CEFC. Uh, but also, I think we're seeing uh, this fantastic uh, development in Australia of the behind the meter market, which and its uh, sort of growing um, relationship with the network companies and with the and, and the need to integrate it and and uh, make it part of the whole market. And so this week we've seen new inverter standards have moved from um, just been in South Australia, the AEMCs move them out more broadly now for new installations. Of course, we've already got 10 or 11 gigawatts or 11 or 12 gigawatts of uh, existing installations. So it's going to take a while for the next 11 to come through with these new standards. And we're seeing in Victoria that once those standards are introduced, uh, that if there's any support at all for household batteries, uh, they tend to get taken up. I think we saw um, uh, 
NRMA solar down there, Mr. McCarthy, who's 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 very good at what he does, it seems to me, uh, saying that uh, you know about three times as many batteries have been sold as were before. Uh, and then there was one uh, other thing that I wanted to mention that's uh, on that that's just uh, escaped my my attention at the moment, Giles. Talking too much. I suppose it's a <laughs> podcast. That's what we do. <laughs> now that's right. Look, while you gather your thoughts and remember what you're going to say, um, yeah, just to sort of um, sort of talk a bit more about sort of Neo in. Um, oh, I know, course, I know what um, it was. Sorry, if I just just before we get back to Neo in, which is a great thing to talk about, it's just that the. Um, uh, um, uh, uh, LG battery, the uh, is it the Ari uh, has come down in price quite sharply. I think I, I saw thirteen kilowatt hours for eight thousand dollars, which is only about six hundred dollars a kilowatt hour, and much more the kind of price that I think the average household can make money out of. That's before installation. But back to Nguyen. Well, no, well, actually, well, let's just keep on LG, uh, LG just for the moment. Um, yeah, that's interesting because they're actually going the opposite way from Tesla. Um, unfortunately, they're also sort of copying a bit of bad publicity because it's their batteries which have been sitting in the electric Konas and the electric Ionics. Um, and this week we got confirmation that there's going to be worldwide global recall um, of all the electric Konas and um, Ionics made by Hyundai, which is about 60, well, no, it's 82,000 vehicles, including about 1,700, up to 1,700 in Australia, which is basically one third of the electric vehicle fleet in this country will be recalled and their batteries will be replaced. Now, 82,000 vehicles being made. I think there's been 15 fires. Um, there's some issue there. We don't actually really know what it is. Um, they try to sort of Correct it with software. Now they get, they try to replace that. That didn't sort of fix it. So now they're doing it with battery management system and actually replacing the whole battery. So if you're actually a Kona owner, then um, it might not be such a bad thing because if you've had your car for two years, you get a new battery and another eight year warranty. So an extension of life. So, but um, not a good. Charles, it takes same. me back to my hippie days talking about fiery Konas. But anyway, uh, uh, we won't go there. But it. <laughs> It does, you just did, David. You just did. It, it does seem to me that Hyundai uh, has learnt from uh, Australian federal politics because uh, at the same time as this recall was quietly being announced, they were announcing the very exciting Ionic 5, uh, which looks to be uh, an electric vehicle and that it will be brought to Australia in the third quarter of this year, I think, uh, which probably means the third quarter of next year in reality, but uh, uh, looking like it, it could be quite a seller. Look, it's actually looking pretty interesting. It's a pretty smart-looking car. Um, it's going to come in various sizes. There's going to be an Ionic 5 followed by a 6 and a 7, and that's going to take care of your sedans and your SUVs and um, and other different shapes. But it's got going to have a solar roof, which will um, add to um, charging into your battery. It's going to have various vehicle-to-grid and vehicle-to-home capabilities. Um, it's going to be pretty quick. Um, what we don't know yet is uh, what the price will be. So I don't think it's actually going to sort of touch down into the mass market area, but I think it's certainly going to be another step for the people who, you know, don't mind spending or prepared to spend 50 grand or more. And I fancy this might be well north of that. Um, but um, an interesting car. And look, just while we're talking electric vehicles, and we might as well keep on going now, um, the Porsche Taycan is going to start deliveries this weekend. Now, that is for a very exclusive set. Um, of people, I actually hate seeing all the increased number of Porsches around the area I live. But um, if they're going to be electric, then why not? Um, and these things will be the most expensive electric vehicles arriving in Australia um, between about 200,000 and 360,000. So if you do find your one yourself behind one and you're sort of gawking at it, um, be careful not to run into the back of it. Yes, in, yes, indeed. I, you know, it's uh, it's a pity that we have to, we do get these. Um 
criticism of electric vehicle drivers that it's only the elite sort of talking about it and they're not for uh, the general man in the street at the moment. And this is where I do think public policy has got a distinct role and uh, we certainly need, you know, recharging networks and stuff. But this is not, I suppose, in the end, although it's an incredibly important topic, the electric vehicle uh, podcast, Giles, uh, it, it is Energy Insiders, but um, in electric vehicles and their relationship with the grid, uh, it's clearly the frontier that the whole world is moving on to now, uh, and it's a, and that frontier is certainly going to be coming to Australia. I think all of us listening to this podcast know yeah. that. And I'm just going to stay on the theme just for one little bit longer, and I'm going to bring it back towards the networks, as we can talk about networks um, very soon. Um, I wrote a story uh, this week in The Driven, a sort of electric vehicle-focused website. I, I, I drove an, a, an EV, sort of a rented or more a borrowed EV around Tasmania for two and a half weeks um, in January on the holiday, and it was fantastic. But we stopped at one electric vehicle charging station, which, to the people's credit, was actually owned by a local petroleum company in um, uh, petrol petrol retailer in Tasmania, and they've actually gone taken the initiative and um, and put in a electric vehicle charging station at two of their petrol stations. But I stopped at one. I was fascinated by it because it's charging one dollar a kilowatt hour, which is just like whoa, that's, that's like right out of the ballpark as far as EV charging um, stations go. And I kind of asked them, you know, how come you're charging that much? And they said, well, we need that to re- reduce the cost. They didn't go into too much detail. But I did get a phone call from um, some other someone else in the um, EV charging world, and they made an in- interesting point that a lot of these EV charging stations are getting blown out of the water by the demand charges um, being imposed by the network. So you can just imagine that, you know, you've got an EV charging thing just sitting there. These demand charges um, are triggered um, as soon as anyone starts charging, particularly if it's a fast charger or super fast charger from, you know, 80 kilowatts up to 200 or 350 kilowatts. And they make they say that that's actually making it incredibly hard to charge less than a dollar a kilowatt hour. In fact, the real price of it might be more. And they're arguing basically that they shouldn't be treated that way large industrial users often get demand charges but they can amortize it but simply by the volume of energy that they consume um, but it's kind of unfair um, on a small thing so that's going to be an interesting um, battle to um, um, uh, yeah, an interesting, no, um, ex- excellent point Giles and it brings it brings uh, out that other point that of course the, the thing there's a huge race in the uh, charging wars now to have ever more powerful chargers um, you know, where we're getting up to 300 and 350 kilowatts of uh, instantaneous charging power. That's a lot. And if you've got a lot of cars doing that all at the one time, uh, it's going to put demands on the system. So this is just an, yet another case uh, of where some planning and thinking and some leadership from, uh, and this is not just the federal government, but I think the state governments have got a role to play here, as do the uh, network operators, uh, uh, this is something we should be getting in place now, but federal government leadership uh, would be very helpful in, in planning for this transition, which is going to come. And, uh, you know, uh, didn't we have a sort of uh, transition roadmap just published recently that we've all read and uh, we're thrilled with its brilliance, you know? <laughs> we're, we're quite overwhelmed, I think, David. Um, look, let, let's stick on networks for a little bit longer. Um, some interesting developments happening here. Um, a lot of them want to build transmission lines, of course. Um, this is happening under the guidance of the Integrated System Plan, um, the creation of renewable energy zones, things like linking South Australia with Victoria, 
Um, a new one has just come out with um, Oznet proposing a link um, to sort of um, unlock what we've dubbed the rhombus of regret and basically allow for more wind and solar to be built in Western Victoria. A lot of it's had to come to a halt basically because the grid's simply not strong enough. We've seen a lot of discussion about the transmission lines for the Snowy Mountains. Um, the Kosciuszko National Park regulations normally stipulate that these things should go underground. They've been given an exemption to go above ground. Um, we've got issues in Tasmania on some of those big wind farms heading towards the Marinus Link. Um, it's going to be an interesting battle for the transmission companies here. I mean, they are being very careful. They are seeking community um, engagement, which, of course, is very, very important. Um, but um, one, one, one sense is that um, it's going to, um, it's, 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 it could in some cases be quite tricky for them. Yes, no, and the economics are tricky, tricky as well because there's fairly minimal returns, uh, frankly, being offered uh, by the um, uh, AER. And uh, we're seeing that uh, Project Energy Connect from South Australia to New South Wales is actually struggling to get ahead it's 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 taken a long long time it still hasn't got the go ahead it's had its uh request to have its economics improved by bringing forward some of the revenue uh, uh not back uh not unexpectedly not back no one ever gets anything through the ar or the amc in that regard um uh so so and yes transmission lines are, are ugly i mean i hear people have heard people complain about wind farms not being pretty but i i actually personally it's in the eye of the beholder quite like wind farms but i don't particularly like big transmission lines above ground but equally it's uh whilst you know it would clearly be way way more expensive to put them underground uh and uh, according to Transgrid, there'd be other issues if you were to do that in Snowy. I'm not, I don't want to get into that debate. It's a, it's a technical one. But so, yes, transmission's uh, struggling. And uh, the bottom line is that right now we're not getting much new transmission actually built, despite the fact it was an absolute crisis and we needed to get it done and everyone's on board and it's terrific. But right now, how much transmission building is actually going on? Um, not very much. Um, very minor upgrades to um, certain links, like the Queensland and New South Wales one, I think, which probably is actually complete now. And just on um, just on networks, it was interesting. Just I just actually just before I sat down to record the podcast, I got a press release from PowerCore, and um, they're doing community engagement for a completely different matter um, next week, and that's actually pulling the um, pulling the local lines down. So they're a distribution network in Western Victoria. They're actually looking to take two towns off the grid and um, replacing and offering them a mix of renewables and battery storage and some some backup in case of emergency and um, taking down the um, the poles and wires. So um, we might tell you more about that next week, but that's a fascinating development. We've heard about stand-up power systems, taking farms and sort of individual in, individuals and very maybe very small communities. But here it looks like we're actually sort of moving into sort of slightly larger um, communities. So that's a um, fascinating prospect too. Giles, we're coming to the end of, uh, I think, uh, time where we can keep our uh, listeners going. I just uh, wanted to mention Michael Mazengrab's uh, article today uh, uh, about the biggest carbon emitters in Australia because a lot of what we do is really about uh, many things, but one of it is reducing carbon emissions. And, of course, AGL always tops the list. It's, it's well over, at over 40 million tonnes, 8% of Australia's total emissions. I mean, you know, this is just uh, for investors around the world. That's a major negative in a public listed company. That's all there is to it. Energy Australia is pretty much equal number two or just ahead of Stanwell Corporation. Then you've got Origin Energy, CS Energy. Uh, you've got the uh, Loyang 
B uh, owners there. Um, uh, then you've Linter. got Ausgen, uh, yeah, which is a Linter, and then you've got Ausgen, uh, which is uh, Milmerin Power Station. Then you get down to the oil companies, Chevron, Woodside, Inpex, Santos, and then you, before you get to anyone else in resources sector, which is Rio, uh, and then uh, Anglo-American. And But it's the vast majority of it is uh, electricity generators. I mean, and it just shows why we focus so much on reducing emissions uh, in that in that space, and hopefully, when we come back in another five years, uh, uh, some of that will have reduced quite significantly in absolute levels, even if the names haven't changed all that much. <laughs> Absolutely, hope so. And it just does serve to highlight um, the fact that um, even though we have reduced um, emissions from the electricity grid quite significantly, at least over the last five um, or ten years, as um, wind and solar increased their penetration, um, there's still a awful lot to do. Look, David, before we go, we must come back to Neo End because we did say we just talk about it um, one more time, um, or also go into further detail. So, what was announced this week was the Victorian big battery, which is an interesting beast. Um, it's going to be the biggest battery will ever take on our power reserve in South. Australia, which has obviously had played a major role in sort of changing the thinking about the operating of the grid and encouraging all these other batteries to 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 proliferate, um, both constructed and in the pipeline. This one's going to sort of serve a particular purpose. Um, a large part of it will, on certain times, at peak times over summer, allow basically sort of operate as a backstop to allow an increased transfer of capacity between um, New South Wales and Victoria. Um, and the fact that it can do that is because it can react quite quickly. It's got high high capacity, 250 megawatts, and it can keep doing that. Even if it only does it for 20 minutes, it's enough to give AEMO time to um, do other things in, in case that something goes wrong. Um, so that's what it's there for, and it will do other things as well in the grid. So, And that's just really, I think, just one of a number of um, of uh, projects. I think um, we, we did an article this week, and it's just quite extraordinary, the number of projects in the pipeline from NEON and others, um, both um, at sort of transmission levels and um, combined with wind and um, solar plants and, and hybrid things. And um, uh, it's going to be sort of quite fascinating to see. Absolutely. And uh, what we also know is that economically, uh, it's all been focused on FCAS uh, pretty much or largely. Uh, uh, that's ancillary services revenue, so it's providing frequency support, which is something batteries do far better than any other technology. We, we know that batteries have already captured the lion's share of uh, the FCAS revenue already. That's before all these new batteries are built. So you can be pretty confident, I think, that returns in that sector are going to shrink very quickly. Uh, and uh, batteries are going to have to start thinking about the other things they can do, uh, like uh, the time shifting of energy uh, and, and just straight out arbitrage. Um, and for, go on, you're going to say? Yes, well, the, yes, well, the five minute settlement should help that when that comes in later in yes. this year. And uh, just on the FCAS, I just think it's actually worth pointing out um, that um, the energy regulator actually pinged a couple of the Queensland coal-fired power stations um, for not providing FCAS when they said they would be. Um, and this actually goes back to a couple of events which happened um, a couple of years ago. In fact, one of them was quite sort of well-known. 
um, well, at least <laughs> on Renew Economy, because there's when a couple of twin lightning strikes struck some power lines, um, the main line linking uh, New South Wales and, um, and Queensland. It took down that line. It isolated Queensland. There's a series of concurrent events which went through the rest of the grid. There was load shedding in New South Wales and Victoria and Tasmania. It was all too much for the transmission line into South Australia, so that shut off. They isolated. Um, so we had load shedding in every other state. In South Australia, all was just tickety-boo because they had the three batteries there, which kind of held the fort and other things were sort of prepared. But in Queensland, they were actually quite unstable for about an hour and a half because a couple of the um, the coal-fired generators, and particularly in this case, Calide, did not do as they were, as they said they were going to do and what they were getting paid for. So it was interesting yeah, to they, see they, that they, the they, they're, they're not They're not providing the frequency support. Uh, they, they don't run to such tight frequency limits. Uh, coal generators in Australia, as I suppose their returns have diminished, have, have been running to a quite a loose frequency standard. I've read several articles from... Uh, various engineers, which I don't understand, people like Bruce Miller on LinkedIn, uh, point, pointing to this uh, problem all the time. But uh, again, the, the point I want to make is that uh, batteries are just such a wonderful, powerful, enabling technology. Coupled with grid-forming inverters, we get these virtual synchronous machines. You can have batteries installed at the point of consumption. They can provide transmission support, as we're just talking about that Neoin is uh, doing. Uh, uh, they can provide all this uh, large-scale frequency support. They can shift energy around the place and make solar farms, you know, get utility solar farms out of competing with rooftop. Um, uh, they can deal with the uh, network uh, grid export limits. You can shift it into your own household or hopefully community battery, which, you know, where the costs are, are way out of skew. I still don't understand why community batteries are so expensive relative to household ones. But, but there's that, you know, anyway, I, I shouldn't get too yes. enthusiastic, but you, you get the general idea, I think, Giles. I like batteries. You do like batteries, and I would love to hear a, um, a federal government minister be as enthusiastic about batteries as um, you are, David, and, and as we are. Look, I think that's going to be about it for today um, in this episode. Um, we did manage to get it for about 25 minutes or so, so that's not a bad effort without a um, without a guest. Um, thank you very much, David. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Pylon and uh, Evergen. Um, thank you to all the listeners. Um, you can find us on um, most of the social media channels on the podcast platforms. Um, we do hope that you will continue to find us on social media panels. Um, I had a bit of a blast this week. Uh, we are quite concerned about the impact of the new media laws and the decisions uh, to force Google and Facebook to pay certain media um, 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 fees to republish their information and the creation of these new um, new showcases or what have you. Um, new economy is not getting invited because, according to um, Google, we don't do public interest journalism. But um, some of the celebrity gossip sites and Sky News Internet, uh, Sky News Australia, which is an appalling source of misinformation, have been um, elevated to that um, new platform. We're quite concerned. We don't know really what this means. We think it bodes very ill for the future of media diversity in Australia, particularly if it results in the search capability of websites like us um, to be diminished and the um, search capability of sites like Sky News Australia and um, other sort of flim flam being promoted. So 
we're quite worried about that. Just alert listeners to that. Um, this is something to watch out for because it won't just affect us. It'll actually affect the um, industry and media diversity and a whole lot of other things around the place anyway. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, once again, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.